Greetings, Grace Chapel, and Merry Christmas to you one more time. I know we've had lots of chances to say that the past uh, month or so, but I really do want you to know how very grateful I am to be able to celebrate and serve with all of you uh, here and across our campuses throughout this season. We had a great, great Christmas season. Uh, over our, our Christmas Eve services, we had over 7,000 people who came and worshiped with us across our campuses, which is the most ever for Christmas for anything that we've done. So we truly are grateful for that and just as grateful for the hundreds and hundreds of people who volunteered to make that possible. So it's been a great, great season and uh, glad to be wrapping it up this morning. Uh, as you can imagine, the Christmas season is a pretty demanding one for our staff around here. We all work pretty hard in this month of December, but we also enjoy the season too and have some fun. And uh, one afternoon uh, earlier this month, we got to kind of goofing around with some Christmas music and Christmas costumes, and we thought we'd show you a few pictures that we're willing to go public with, okay? <laughs> if you promise not to uh, get them out on social media, but here we go. So... Um, here we are learning a Christmas dance. Now, you may be saying to yourselves, I didn't know the staff could dance. And you're right, we can't. But we tried and had a little fun here. Um, here's a little hip-hop preaching going on, trying to get into the groove of the season. These are a couple staff members having a little turf war over uh, some resources here at Grace. That's how we settle our disputes around here. And then finally, here's a more genteel Christmas greeting from a good portion of your staff. We weren't all together that particular afternoon, but maybe you find uh, some of your favorite staff members there. We have a pretty large staff these days, around 60 or so of us, and across our campuses. I just want you to know we have a great time together. We love each other, uh, we respect each other, and are really thrilled to be serving all of you. So thank you for your many expressions to, of love towards us in the Christmas season, as you have done in many ways. Thank you. I also want to let you know that this afternoon, Karen and I and a group of about 20 Grace Chapel folks are heading out to the Urbana Missions Conference being held in St. Louis. Now, this is a student missions conference held every three years, sponsored by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and it will bring together about 15,000 delegates, mostly young adults, from all over the world for four days of worship and teaching focused on the subject of world mission. So, again, we're bringing a, a group here from Grace along and looking forward to learning how we as a church and individuals can more effectively be engaged with what God is doing around the world. It's a very important part of what we do here at Grace. Now, as it turns out, we have to be there by tonight, which means I'm heading to the airport right after this service, which means the 11 o'clock folks will get to enjoy the sermon in high-def video, just like our other campuses do every Sunday. And if it goes well, I may start preaching from home from time to time, so we'll see how that works. <laughs> well, we've had a great time this month talking about miracles. Folks have really resonated with the series, and we've reminded ourselves that miracles still happen today. They happened then, they happen now. And we've learned that living the impossible means uh, allowing for the possibility that, that, that the world can be changed, that relationships can be restored, that our lives can count for something eternally. And that at any moment, God can break into our experience in life-transformative kinds of ways. And so I trust you have found encouragement. Maybe you have sensed and experienced something miraculous in this Christmas season or have been inspired to look for God to do something great in the days to come. Miracles happen. And that truth fills our days with joy and hope and anticipation, especially at Christmas time. But what happens when Christmas is over? 
What happened when life happens when life goes back to normal and every day seems to be the same and nothing very miraculous seems to be happening? What happens when there are no miracles to be seen? The saying goes, ain't nothing that's over like Christmas. Just about two hours ago, two days ago rather, we were all gathered around sparkling Christmas trees in someone's living room, enjoying opening gifts and spending time with family and friends. Just 48 hours later, there are more pine needles on the floor, perhaps, than there are still on the tree. It's a pile of presents by the door that need to get returned. The house is a wreck. The cookies are stale. The music is tired. Everyone's cranky. And it's raining on Sunday, you know? <laughs> and life is pretty normal. All those things you've been putting off till after the holidays are suddenly coming due again. Life after Christmas is anything but miraculous. And I suspect the same was true for the Holy Family, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, in the days and months and years following his birth. At a certain point, the miracles came to an end. There were no more angelic visitors. There were no more signs in the heavens. No more dignitaries visiting from foreign lands. Suddenly, Mary and Joseph found themselves with a child to care for and miles to travel and bills to pay, and neighbors to get along with. They weren't living the impossible anymore. They were living the ordinary, and the everyday, and the mundane. So what does it mean to live the impossible after Christmas, when nothing miraculous seems to be happening? In fact, it may be that this whole series on miracles has left you feeling just a little bit left out. Maybe it's been a long time since you've seen God do something miraculous in your life or your home or your church and ministry. How do you live the life of faith when nothing miraculous seems to be happening? Let's conclude our series by seeing what life was like for the Holy Family after the events of that first Christmas. Now, it turns out um, we have our children and students in the service today, and I'm really glad for that because we're going to be looking at the childhood of Jesus and the young adult years of Jesus and see what we can learn from them. We don't have a lot to go on. We have about a half a chapter to work with, but we will learn a lot in that half a chapter about what happens in those ordinary days and years of life. So let's kind of walk through this second half of Luke chapter 2 and see what we can learn about life after Christmas. I'll pick it up in Luke 2, verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So here we find Joseph and Mary doing all the things that new parents do after the birth of a child. They're announcing the name They're trying to find some rest and routine in this uh, new stage of life they've entered into. And they are bringing the baby out in public for the very first time, diaper bag and all. What I find interesting is that even though this child Jesus has gotten off to such a holy and miraculous start, Mary and Joseph still felt it was important to participate in those earthly spiritual ceremonies that mark the birth of a new child. It's doubly interesting when you remember that there still would have been all kinds of rumors and suspicions swirling about this child's beginnings. No doubt there were some whispers in the congregation on that day the baby Jesus was presented in the temple. But Mary and Joseph were determined 
that their child would mark those moments in the faith community. Now, they did have a couple of interesting encounters that day. You wouldn't call them miraculous exactly, but they were kind of curious, these two characters, old man Simeon and an equally aged prophetess named Anna. And I say there's nothing miraculous about that because every church has its interesting characters. We have people who are a part of the fabric of life around here, around any community, every church. And sometimes they speak into the lives of people in that community. And that's what happens here. Both Anna and Simeon have a moment with the baby Jesus and they speak prophetic words about that child, about the significance and the struggle that's ahead for he and for his family. Then we read, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Now, Luke skips over the threat from King Herod and the flight from, from Egypt, which we read about in Matthew's gospel. Most scholars suggest that a year or two, maybe even three, passed before the Holy Family found its way back to Nazareth. But the first thing we want to notice here is that Jesus was raised in Nazareth. If you were to choose one word to describe Nazareth, it would be ordinary. The town Nazareth is never mentioned at all in the Old Testament, it only appears in the New Testament as the hometown of Jesus. Nothing else ever happens there. It was a lot like the towns that you and I live in today, probably. For almost 16 years now, our family has been living in Bedford, just down the road. And uh, when our kids were teenagers, they and their friends used to refer to it as Deadford. <laughs> because there was nothing to do and nothing ever happened. And Nazareth was that kind of a town. Jesus wasn't raised in the holy city of Jerusalem. He wasn't raised in the historic town of Bethlehem. He wasn't raised in the seat of power in Caesarea. He was raised in a town called Nazareth where there was nothing to do and nothing ever happened. Second thing to notice is that Jesus grew. Verse 40, And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, what's interesting about this is how ordinary it is. That's what kids do. They grow. Kids, my, my guess is that some of you saw some of your grandparents, your relatives, your aunts and uncles, maybe some you hadn't seen for a while. You saw them this Christmas. And my guess is some of them pinched you on the cheek and said, my, how you've grown. And you thought, my, how you've shrunk. <laughs> but that's what kids do. They grow. They develop. They get stronger. They get wiser. They become more fully themselves year after year. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't come into the world fully formed. He didn't have superpowers. He didn't have a memory chip in his head containing all the scripture available to him. No, he grew. He developed. Just like a regular kid. Now that may seem obvious to us, but it has not always been obvious to people of faith. Some people have assumed that since Jesus was God's son, he surely must have been an unusual child with a remarkable set of power and circumstances, spiritually and otherwise. If you look at some of the famous artwork depicting Jesus as a child, you'll see what I mean. Here's a famous painting of Jesus as a little boy. Now, it looks like he's having a play date with a friend, but notice a couple things. Notice how he's offering his snack to his friend as if Jesus was born knowing how to share. Any of your kids born knowing how to share? <laughs> it's not the picture the Bible gives us. 
The Bible suggests that Jesus learned to share just as he learned everything else to do in life like any other kid does. And notice, too, the cherubs hovering nearby, making sure Jesus doesn't fall and skin his knee. Again, nothing in the Bible to suggest that. Jesus didn't have an entourage of uh, body angels who were around him, making sure nothing bad ever happened to him. There are even some false gospels, some so-called gospels from the ancient world that offer us stories about the childhood of Jesus. One of those gospels, so-called gospels, is entitled The First Gospel of the Infancy of Jesus Christ. It comes from the 2nd or 3rd century A.D. It tells stories about Jesus as a child. For instance, Jesus and his playmates were once fashioning animals out of clay. Jesus not only fashioned a remarkably lifelike-looking little bird, he breathed on that bird, it came to life, and flew away in front of all his friends. On another occasion, the story goes, Jesus and his friends were playing on the roof of a house, which they often did in those flat-topped roofs. One of Jesus' playmates falls off and dies, but Jesus brings him back to life again. In another tradition, uh, Jesus turns out to be quite the little helper in the woodshop with his father, Car- with his father Joseph. Joseph cuts a piece of wood too short, Jesus lays hands on it, and it miraculously becomes the right length again. <laughs> now that's the kind of helper I need in my woodshop. Now the problem with these stories is not only that they lack any kind of historical validity at all, they're, they're clearly made up well after the fact. The other problem is they, they contradict the teaching of the real Gospels which tell us that Jesus lived an ordinary childhood. And there really was nothing very miraculous about it that anybody could see. Remember, the Gospels were written to prove that Jesus was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. We can be sure if there was any material from his early life that substantiated that claim, the Gospel writers would surely have included it. Apparently, nothing miraculous happened in those years. Now, it turns out we do have one authentic story from Jesus' childhood. So let's take a look at that. It comes from his adolescence, actually, and then we'll draw some conclusions. Verse 41. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. And notice again, Mary and Joseph actively practicing their faith and participating in the life of the faith community. Now, there was no requirement that a family go to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. Many would be content to go once or twice in a lifetime. But it seems as though they went every year or almost every year. And this time, as their son is coming of age, they want to be sure that he gets the opportunity for the first time to go into the temple courts to sit with the rabbis and the teachers of the law and the other men and talk about the Scriptures. But somehow, Mary and Joseph lose track of Jesus as they leave town and head back for home. It's not all that hard to imagine how it would have happened. The people traveled in packs and in caravans. Men and women traveled in separate groups. Probably Mary and Joseph each thought the other one had Jesus. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I will tell you that we've left a child at church on at least two occasions and didn't realize it until we got home. Now... They didn't have any cell phone to call the kid. There was no, couldn't hop in the car and run back and pick him up. It took a while to realize that Jesus was missing. 
then make it back to Jerusalem, and then retrace their steps through the city to try to find him. By that time, a couple of days have passed. Pick it up at verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Once again, tradition has not served us well in how it has represented this scene for us. Look at this painting, pretty typical of artwork describing this incident. For one thing, notice that Jesus looks more European than Middle Eastern. And that's both inaccurate and also unfortunate. Because honestly, images like this have helped to fuel notions of white supremacy down through the ages. Jesus' skin would have been darker than that, and his hair curlier for sure. The other problem with a painting like this is that it portrays Jesus as a kind of super scholar who takes over the room and becomes the master teacher in this circle of rabbinic scholars. Notice the halo he has around his head and the commanding presence among these teachers. But that's not really the way that Scripture describes the scene. Notice, we're told that Jesus was sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Jesus is there as a learner, not as a teacher. Now, as it turns out, he has remarkable insights and understanding. But again, we get the sense that he is growing in his understanding, that people are just beginning to recognize his remarkable ability to understand and handle the Scripture. There's no sense that he's born with it or that it came to him in some unnatural or supernatural way. The most interesting thing about this whole incident is his parents' response. Verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Jesus' parents are taken completely by surprise by this incident. Like most parents, when their child goes missing, their first thought isn't, oh, he's gone back to church again. My guess is they checked the ball field or the video arcade or wherever it was kids hung out in Jerusalem before they finally made their way to church. And even once they found him there, they were still surprised to find him there even after he explained it to them. In other words, it wasn't as though up until this point Jesus has been such an unusually spiritual child that their first thought was, oh, he's back at the synagogue again. That's not what they thought. So some people have pointed to the story and said, wow, what an unusual family they must have had. I look at it and say, what a very normal family this is. You've got a kid who wanders off. You've got anxious parents fretting about their missing child. You've got a husband and wife who have miscommunicated with each other. And you've got an adolescent who's amazed at how clueless his parents are. <laughs> it all sounds pretty familiar. The only really unusual thing about this family is that they're fighting on the way home from church instead of on the way there. <laughs> this is a normal family in action. It's right out of a TV sitcom. Apparently, it's been a long time since Mary and Joseph have had any indications that there's something miraculous going on with their child. 
the angel, the magi, the star. That was a long, long time ago. A lot of ordinary, uneventful days in their lives since then. This catches them completely by surprise. So in spite of those supernatural events around Jesus' birth, the next 12 years of his life were remarkably unremarkable. And the same thing is going to be true of the next nearly 20 years as well. Look at the final verse of chapter 2. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and people. Once again, we're told that Jesus grew, that he developed in the same ways that any normal child develops, mentally in wisdom, physically in stature, spiritually in favor with God, and socially in favor with people. Now, we all understand, the Bible is clear that Jesus was without sin. And so there was never a point in Jesus' life where he rebelled against the will of his heavenly Father. But it doesn't mean that Jesus never made a mistake. It doesn't mean he never spilled his milk, or tussled with his brothers and sisters, or struggled with his parents. In fact, the Bible tells us in another place that Jesus learned obedience. All this to say that after Christmas, there were not many miracles to be seen in the life of this holy family. In fact, there are none that we are told of. And that was true not only of Jesus' childhood and his adolescence, but his young adult years as well. Luke 3 tells us that Jesus is about 30 years old when he's baptized and begins his public ministry. Which means Jesus spent the first three decades of his life the way any ordinary Jewish boy, teenager, young man would spend them. Studying his lessons, getting along with his family, learning a trade, doing a job, practicing his faith. As far as we're told, there's no dreams, there's no, no angels rescuing him from bullies. There's no voice from the heavens whispering the answers to the test into his ear. Nothing like that. Jesus and Joseph and Mary had to figure it out just like the rest of us, one day at a time, believing God was at work even when there were no miracles to be seen. Believing that God was at work even when there are no miracles to be seen. So it's been terrific to talk about miracles in this Christmas season. To be reminded that they do happen. They still happen. They can happen. I believe we've been strengthened by the stories of those miracles and the realities. We've been encouraged, I hope, to trust God and seek God and believe God for great things in our lives and homes and church and world. The message of Christmas is that miracles happen. But... Christmas ends, and miracles are not the norm. They weren't for Jesus and his family, and they aren't for us and our families either. Much of life is not miraculous, but mundane. I looked it up just to make sure we're using it right. This is what it, how it reads. Mundane, lacking interest or excitement, 
of the earthly world rather than a heavenly or spiritual one. Sounds like the right word to describe a good portion of Jesus' earthly life and, and ours as well. Now, I don't mean to suggest that life, ordinary life, can't be exciting. It certainly can be and is exciting. And I don't mean to suggest there's not a spiritual dimension to every aspect of life. We know that there is. What I am saying is that we often are not aware of that spiritual dimension. We're not always paying attention to those things. Much of life can seem occupied with earthly pursuits of work and home and school and play. It's not always obvious to us that spiritual things are happening in those experiences. But on this final day of our series, we learn that living the impossible means, that, means believing that God is working miracles even when life feels very ordinary. That God is working miracles even when life feels very ordinary. The second half of Luke chapter 2 teaches us that those years, those 30 years between his birth and his baptism were absolutely essential to the person Jesus would become and to the mission that he would fulfill. Even though nothing miraculous happens that we can see, important things are happening in his life, in his family's life, and in the world that will prepare him and the world for the miraculous things that God is going to do. The childhood of Jesus teaches us that when God is in it, even the mundane matters. Even the mundane matters. For instance, family matters. Family matters. From the moment Joseph and Mary laid Jesus in that manger, the rest of their lives would be occupied with the tasks of parenthood. I've got a pet peeve with one of our Christmas carols, maybe you do too, Away in a Manger. It's a beautiful little lullaby, but it sort of suggests that when the animals woke up baby Jesus, no crying he makes. I'm pretty sure he cried. I'm pretty sure he did all the other things that babies do that parents need to take care of. And that's what Mary and Joseph did for all the years of Jesus' childhood. It's what they did for his half-brothers and sisters as well as they raised a family together. And they did it the same way that parents today do it, only there's no disposable diapers and there's no baby monitors to watch the kids. If they hadn't done those things, if they hadn't provided that physical and emotional and spiritual uh, safety for Jesus, he never could have become, in an earthly sense, the man and the Messiah that God had sent him to earth to be. So mothers... Fathers, grandparents, aunts, uncles. The care and nurture that you provide for the children in your life, that matters. God is at work in those daily tasks, in those simple responsibilities, those things you do day after day after day. God is at work in those things, not only to shape your child, the children you love, but to shape you as well. As Karen and I watch our own grown kids now beginning to raise their children, as we're reminded of how demanding parenthood can be, we sometimes say to ourselves, how did we do it? <laughs> Four kids, 
30 years of child rearing. How many meals, how many diapers, how many carpools, how many open school nights, how many timeouts, how many curfew battles, how many doctor visits, how many tuition payments? How did we do it? That's our first thought. The second thought is, aren't we glad we did it? Aren't we glad for every day, for, for, for every moment, for every dollar invested in the nurture and development of our children, to see the people they are becoming today and the ways that God is at work in their lives? It all matters. Every day, every dollar, every decision, parents, grandparents, it all adds up to something significant in the end, even though it may not always feel like it in the moment. God works through those moments, even through our mistakes and our struggles, to shape us, to shape our children and our homes for the work he's calling us to do. And just a word to the kids, okay? You're not off the hook here, kids. Family matters to you, too. Obeying your parents, helping out around the house, getting along with your siblings, those things are important. God is working in your life and theirs when you do those things. Jesus had to do all those very same things. And his brothers and sisters were just as annoying as yours are. I can promise you. <laughs> Family matters. Secondly, school matters. Sorry, kids. Hate to bring it up in the middle of vacation, but you're going to have to go back before too long. Education is important. Twice we're told that Jesus grew in wisdom. He went to school. He did homework. He hung around smart people. He listened and asked questions and learned. We're not told that Jesus graduated first in his class, but if he did, he worked for it. So whether you're in grade school or middle school or high school or college or somewhere beyond, it matters. What you're learning, what you're experiencing, God is using it to shape you for whatever your life, work, and mission is going to be. Even when you're sitting in class sometimes and saying, when am I ever going to use this in real life? I remember saying that many times, in particular in math and geometry class. When am I ever going to use this in real life? Well, it turns out I had a, a great high school math teacher. His name was Mr. LaBruna. I went to a public high school. I knew that Mr. LaBruna was a Christ follower in the, in the Catholic tradition. We didn't often talk about religion, faith, but he was a remarkable man. And, uh, and he made a mark on me, even though, believe me, I was not one of his prized pupils in algebra and geometry. But Mr. LaBruna taught me two things. First, he taught me to think how to think analytically, how to solve a problem, how to construct an argument and prove a point. I learned how to think in those classes. I also learned how to teach because Mr. LaBruna had a knack for making math fun and accessible, even to those of us for whom it did not come naturally. And I remember thinking, if, if he can make math fun, then I can make the Bible fun as I try to teach it to teenagers and share it with friends and made a mark on me as a teacher. Now, it's true, never once in my life have I had to solve a quadratic equation. 
But math class shaped my mind and my ministry in ways I never could have understood at the time. School matters. I don't know if Jesus took algebra, but he became the wisest student and the best teacher the world has ever known. Students, teachers, school matters. Thirdly, work matters. The fact that Jesus is known as the carpenter's son suggests that uh, he continued in his father's trade, a trade he had to learn, and then, assuming we ha he had to practice it for 10 to 15 years. It's interesting that Joseph disappears from the record after that incident at the temple when Jesus is 12 years old. So there's a good likelihood that Joseph died during Jesus' teenage years or his early adult years. And so it may very well be that as the oldest son, Jesus carried on and ran the family business, the carpenter shop. He truly became one of us, going to work every day, paying bills, keeping track of inventory, keeping a ledger book, dealing with customers, delivering in deadlines. Jesus knew those things. And that work was very important to the ministry he would carry on. Because one of the things that marked Jesus' ministry was his ability to connect with common people and to take the Bible, or to take God's word and relate it to everyday life. Your work matters, whatever kind of work it is you do every day. Because by your work, you are not only providing for the ones you love, you are contributing to the common good, you are glorifying God by your excellence, you are being shaped and refined as a Christ follower, and you are bearing witness to the presence and goodness of Jesus Christ as you rub shoulders with people every day. Work matters. And then finally, church matters. Notice how important the faith community was to Mary and Joseph. All through those years, Mary and Joseph didn't just assume that Jesus would get it because he was God's son. They were very intentional about those rites of passage, about his participation in the holy days and the weekly trips to the synagogue. We know that even as an adult, in his public ministry, Jesus continued that practice of going to the synagogue every week. You see, Jesus' parents knew that he needed other adults in his life, other people of faith. Faith parents, we're calling them here at Grace now. Annas and Simeons and others who would speak into the life of their child, their young man as he grew up. But Jesus knew that he needed to have friends and relationships in the faith community to keep him strong in his faith. That's, that's why we're investing so deeply in Next Generation Ministries here at Grace. Because we believe those years, the childhood years, the student years, the young adult years, they're so critical to the formation of lifelong Christ followers who will make a mark on the world. After one of our Christmas Eve services, uh, I bumped into an older gentleman out here in the lobby, one of our regulars here at Grace. I'm not sure if he's as old as Simeon, but he's close. He's been volunteering in our high school ministry for as long as I can remember. He was telling me that uh, some of the kids that he was leading a small group with when they were freshmen in high school are now graduating from college eight years later this year. He's been tracking with them all this time, even though they're four years out of high school. And he's organizing a little reunion, hoping to kind of get them together sometime. As he talked to me about the boys, he got a little bit choked up. 
saying some of those boys really aren't walking that closely with the Lord right now. But he wants them to know that he still loves them and that God still has a good plan for, for their lives. And I can assure you that man has sat through a lot of mundane small group discussions with those boys. Xbox and Patriots and all that kind of stuff. You try to get boys talking at 9.15 a.m. on a Sunday morning and see how far you get. But he was there week after week after week after month after year after year after year. So what looks to be very mundane is actually quite a miraculous thing. That a seasoned saint would be investing years and years of his life in the lives of young men who are not a part of his family in order that they might have an opportunity to know and follow Christ. That's miraculous. Church matters. If you want to see something miraculous in the lives of your children or the children you care about or the children of our church, then we need to invest in them. Parents, it is your responsibility, like Joseph and Mary, to make sure they get there week after week for you to encourage their involvement, to do all the traveling and the driving and the spending and whatever the rearranging you have to do for them to participate. It is worth it. That's what parents do. Students, you need to make it a priority to be part of the life of your church and your youth group. Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Friday night, whenever it's happening, you'll get your homework done, you'll make it to practice, you can do all those things. There's time. You need Christian friends in your life. Grace Chapel, folks, one of the most powerful investments you can make in the kingdom is to give an hour or two a week in Kidstown or student ministries investing in the next generation. Church, work, school, family, it all matters. It all adds up. Living the impossible means believing that God is working miracles even when life seems very ordinary. That God can do something miraculous even on the Sunday after Christmas and speak into our lives in ways that are transformative and get us started in a new direction. So as we take down the decorations and the house empties out, let's invite Christ to be a part of our ordinary days as surely as we invite him to be a part of our Christmas. And let's look for him to do something miraculous. Let's pray. We are deeply grateful, Lord, for this wonderful season that we've been able to enjoy the truths that we have encountered and been reminded of, the songs and stories we've shared, wonderful, meaningful, beautiful, reflective, transformative moments. Personally, as families, as a faith community, we're grateful for that. We do pray your blessing on everyone we had an opportunity to touch in some way over this Christmas season. We're praying that many, Lord, might come back to hear and learn more in the days to come. Pray that you might keep such folks in our thoughts and prayers and love as we head out into the new year. And Lord, we do invite you now into the days to come as we flip the calendar and head into a new year and a new season of school, work, church, life. We look forward to meeting you there in ordinary and extraordinary ways. In Jesus' name, amen.